My name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking Richard Lester. Cling, a hit guy. It's been a hot day's night. No more, no more. We don't want to get sued, Will. Okay, okay. And can I just say, the greatest filmmaker ever born in London, England. Hello, hello. That's my Richard Lester impersonation, the most British filmmaker that there ever was. I have his birth certificate right here. It says born London, England. So nobody tell me he's not. Okay, listen, we said last week, we're talking about one of the defining British filmmakers. And we have said this before, and I had forgotten people had sent in letters before about that as well. <laughs> because he's actually born in Pennsylvania. Mm. But I just want to say, fuck that shit. Okay, <laughs> when you make A Hard Day's Night, when you make The Knack, the knack and How to Get It. <laughs> You are a British filmmaker. I'm sorry. I'm not listening to any more. I believe that he only directed Petulia in America. And he actually said he didn't like the cruise or anything like that. So he's like, whoop, back to merry old London I go. The man made Robin and Marion, okay? Like this man. Royal Flash. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Come on, guys. Like Bob Hope, as Will mentioned before we started recording this, was actually born in London, England. <laughs> Come on now. It's <laughs> bullshit. But anyway, anyway. Richard Lester. Look, I've seen over the years a decent number of Richard Lester mm -hmm. movies simply because some of them are unavoidable. You know, I've seen the two Beatles movies. I'd seen the two Superman movies. And I feel like those movies, just even saying that gives a sense of why I always had a hard time getting a handle on him as a filmmaker. Well, probably because the subjects were so gigantic in those films that that superseded any style that he brought to them. That's right. And well, especially Superman, where he kind of came in as the pitch hitter once Richard Donner was fired. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I feel like in the Superman saga, Lester has in the last 20 years or so come to be painted as a little bit of a villain, mm -hmm. or if not a villain, then at least somebody who, well, yeah, a villain, because he made Superman 3, which sucks. Yes. He did. Superman 2, there's the director's cut, which, you know, restores Richard Donner's much more serious original vision. I mean, for people that don't know, what happened with Superman was that it was shot as two movies over one long shooting period. And Richard Donner had a lot of difficulty getting through it. And before he was done, he was let go and Richard Lester came in and finished the movie. Right. And, you know, with Superman 3, it was perceived that he'd brought this kind of silliness to it. Well, Richard Lester being silly? No one can see me doing the Home Alone face here. But I think also Richard Lester is hard to get a handle on because there are different phases of his career. A Hard Day's Night, The Knack and How to Get It. These are very, you know, they're very silly and they're very new wave. And then later on, he grows to more, let's say, normal movies like Robin and Marion. And then the sellout period, there's <laughs> Superman, you know, I mean, he does like Butch and Sundance, the early days. That's a real like, uh, listen, I got a lot of cottages I got to pay for. So he's not somebody with this perfect perfect filmography. And yet there are people who love him very much. You were talking about how you love this book of interviews that Steven Soderbergh did with Richard Lester. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you flipped through it again. Oh, yeah. I actually read it before recording this podcast. It's a book that it's an interview with Soderbergh interviewing Lester because he was very much inspired by Lester when he made his personal film Schizopolis. Mm -hmm. And that's why you want to talk to Lester. And the book is actually jumping in between that interview and diary entries from Steven Soderbergh trying to sell Schizopolis, doing rewrites on Mimic, trying to get a Henry Selleck movie started that actually never happened, and him being kind of like a self-loathing filmmaker who feels he's not doing enough. What does Soderbergh get out of Richard Lester? A kind of freewheeling, anything-goes vibe. I think that when he's inspired by Lester, it is specifically from stuff like The Knack and A Hard Day's Night that kind of fuses reality with a high-flying, I mean, the easiest way to describe it is Mad Magazine style 
style sense of humor. Yeah, I mean, in those early movies, it's kind of like if you took some of the aesthetics and some of the spirit of the French New Wave and then mixed it with a very English vibe, you know, the Goon Show, English musical, proto Monty Python stuff. I have a quote here from the British Film Institute. If any single director can encapsulate the popular image of Britain in the swinging 60s, then it is probably Richard Lester. With his use of flamboyant cinematic devices and liking for zany humor, he captured the vitality and sometimes the triviality of the period more vividly than any other director. Now, something that doesn't get talked a lot about Lester is that he spent a decade doing television. And in the book, they actually talk about him doing a lot of live television, which was a norm at the time, but is not really documented on IMDb or anything like that. And I think that's where he got his chops for that kind of in the momentness. Mm-hmm. You see that a lot. I mean, considering he became a journeyman later on his career, you see that in a lot of kind of, you know, very talented journeymen like John Frankenheimer was also a live TV director. And that kind of immediacy is present in the feature films they would do afterwards. The immediacy as well as kind of the adaptability. Sidney Lumet's another guy Mm -hmm. who started in live TV. And there's that feeling when you look at his filmography of like, okay, he can adapt to any style, any story, and he can just do it. And Lester also worked a lot with Spike Milligan for a number of years doing like three series in just one year, actually, 1956, which was the Idiot Weekly Price Second, a show called Fred and Son of Fred. I have to admit at this point, I have to shamefacedly admit that, yes, he was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, no. In, in 1932. But after Richard Lester began work for American television in the 50s, he moved to London in 1955. And one of his key early connections there was Peter Sellers, who at the time was a member of the very popular The Goon Show, which is probably best known on these shores as the forerunner for Monty Python. Mm-hmm. It was the direct inspiration for Python. It was also a radio show. That's right. Where he, anything could fly. He was very crucial in facilitating the transition from radio to television. By the way, have you ever listened to any of The Goon Show? Not really, no. I have to say, I mean, it's it's obviously great, but I find it a little impenetrable. I mean, it's so... You listen to those radio broadcasts and they're so dense with comedy well, that it's, it's hard to like figure out what's even happening you know Lester said that like the shows that they would do by the end were completely opaque to the audiences to the point that like sketches would run into other sketches so there would be no punchline and objects would transition and take different properties visually than they did before I mean man I listen to it and I want to love it and mm-hmm. it just has the texture and the flavor of ever- something that I would love but I can never I can just never find my way into the goon show but with Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan Lester made in 1959 what I think you could call his breakthrough movie, mm-hmm. the Running, Jumping, and Standing Still film. Which was just done as a lark because Peter Sellers had bought a 16 millimeter camera. So they went out and they just shot something for fun, according to Lester doing like one take on everything. And it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Short Film. Seen today, I mean, it's quite, it's, it's charming. <laughs> yeah. it, again, very proto Monty Python, really proto TikTok, I would say. It's, yes. it's, it's a lot of just disconnected tomfoolery. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think to some degree, maybe you had to be there. I mean, according to Lester, it played in cinemas for years, which is like they must have been star for entertainment back then. I think I think just in 1959, this is around the same time when the new wave is about to start. It's about the same time when Cassavetes is working across the pond. Like there was just this energy that Mm. was happening all over the world for a kind of cinema that was looser and freer and more anarchic and played by fewer of the rules that cinema used to play by. And this is 
was just one example of that broad tendency that was happening everywhere. Hello, I like what the French are doing, but can we have some Englishmen up on screen doing those kind of things? Ah, hey. uh, here we go. Hey, I got four Englishmen for you. <gasps> The monkeys? Oh, oh, wait. No, they're American. Al- almost <laughs> as yeah. good as the monkeys. All right. The names are John, Paul, George, and Ringo. <gasps> the Beatles themselves. And it is A Hard Day's Night. Now, this was not Richard Lester's first movie. First, he made a movie called A Ring-A-Ding Rhythm and The Mouse on the Moon, a sequel to The Mouse That Roared. But Richard Lester is like, yes, those are films are made. They were journeyman job. Let's push those aside. So, A Hard Day's Night, 1964, iconic. It's the story of these four young men who are in a band called, let me let me see, The Beatles. Mm-hmm. And they become extremely famous overnight. And this is one of those movies, I think when it was pitched, when it was conceived, it was probably thought of as kind of like an Elvis movie, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a silly little vehicle for these kids who might not be famous in two years anymore. But I mean, there were tons of these kind of like pop star movies. Even John Borman, the director of Point Blank, did one. What The Beatles and what Richard Lester bring to it is lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it ostensibly captures a day in the life of the Beatles while they're preparing they're for They're being this, swarmed. You know. They fuck so much. Oh, yeah, you're constantly. <laughs> Constantly saying just dicks. You <laughs> Slap know. it. Yeah. You know, they're jacking off and making eye contact like Paul McCartney said they used to do. Yeah, yeah. Just the the Fellini-esque orgies that they would later describe in their interviews depicted mm. in, in... Nah, they're just a bunch of kids all dressed alike with the same haircuts, running around, tripping as they do in the first shot. Very amusing. As their great music is blasting on the soundtrack. They're just silly boys preparing for this big TV concert that they're going to do. And Paul's got a grandpa who's played by a guy who was famous on British TV. He was on mm-hmm. a show called Steptoe and Son. Uh, okay. <laughs> we all love Steptoe and Son. <laughs> so there's this running gag in the movie where everyone says, what a clean old man. And apparently that's because on Steptoe and Son, everyone would say, you dirty old man. Oh, uh, so it was a, another, we had to be there. Yeah, it was, a, it was a contemporary reference. A lot of this movie, obviously very artificial. This is not really what the Beatles lives were like. But it is immediate and it feels like it's off the cuff, all the stuff that they're doing, which really surprised me when I learned that the entire film is dubbed the Beatles have to go in and dub all of their dialogue in the movie really I, yes. I actually didn't know that okay well yeah. it feels it's completely feel natural way. well anyway I mean what it does capture though it captures this feeling this vibe that's very real and I don't know whether it's just a reality of we what we project onto the Beatles mm-hmm. or, or not but it projects this feeling of being newly famous and being young and just being overwhelmed and excited and scared a little bit by that feeling of being famous, but also feeling just a little bit like cheeky, a bit like, can you can you believe this is happening? Can you believe these these journalists want to talk to us with their with their ridiculous questions? Can you believe all these girls are chasing us? That's 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 mad, isn't (laughs) it? And it captures that. And that's real. And that's why this movie endures. And the filmmaking of it, the new wave inspired filmmaking, where it feels like a newsreel. You mm. feel like you're just following like them There's along. the famous shot where it's like a helicopter is following them and they're just kind of like pushing themselves around in a field and doing bits. Yeah, like it feels like you're getting swept up in this and that there's actually... I mean, obviously, the movie is very beautiful in a lot of ways, but it feels like it's off the cuff and there's no plan for it because this is happening all just too fast mm. to plan. And then a year later, when they make help, <laughs> let's hermetically seal it, do something <laughs> that is the exact opposite. Yeah. And I think I don't know if you've seen Help lately. I've never been a fan of that movie. Yeah, neither have I. It's I not think, very funny. I think it's not funny. I think it just feels kind of dead, especially compared to this one. It did lead to the actual song Help because they wrote it in supposedly like a day once they changed the title of the movie. That's a great song. I like that song. Yeah. The 
Beatles. They're good. <laughs> How could we uh, say any different? I wish we would come in with a contrarian opinion and be like, we love help. Don't like a hard day's night. Beatles bad. <laughs> but we can't do that. I wonder if anybody has that <laughs> sequence of opinions. Well, listen, we know someone who's like, I think the monkeys are a little bit better than the Beatles. <laughs> His initials may be MK. <laughs> <laughs> the year after A Hard Day's Night, and in fact, the same year he made Help, he made The Knack and How to Get It, this uh, 1965 sex comedy. I didn't feel that Hard Day's Night was French New Wave enough. Have you seen this new movie called Zazie dans le Metro? Let's do some of that. Yeah, and it's got a bit of a Jules and Jim energy mm-hmm. to it. Uh, I hear I am just throwing around <laughs> French New Wave titles. Most famous movies ever. <laughs> <laughs> but it does. And Richard Lester in the interview book, he says, like, we were all watching those movies. Of course, we were inspired by them. So I, I love The Knack and How to Get It, mm-hmm. which I only just saw for the first time today. I think it's fantastic. Very complex movie. Ooh, yeah, those last 10 minutes. Very difficult, very... Especially considering up until then, it's all light and frothy, and there's a Scooby-Doo-style chase. So the story is there's this young school teacher who doesn't have game. He doesn't have mojo. He doesn't have the knack. But his roommate does, or his housemate does. His, his neighbor, I believe it is. Yeah. And... Uh, much of it is about his neighbor trying to teach him the art of knack, but also the art of knack kind of flowing freely between the two of them. And frankly, a lot of the movie is about rape mm-hmm. and not, you know, physical rape and the kind of like psychological bullying of a woman. Yeah, it's taking that idea of, wait, the game. What was that? Like, yeah, the, the ga- book? game. Yeah. Yeah, key- keys to the VIP. <laughs> Whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. Isn't there like a term for that whole? I like... think it was called The Game, yeah, actually, okay. that, that book. Yeah. And and the fact that like it go, it takes that idea to its extreme at the end of the movie. And much of the movie is about what would be called in the parlance of our times, toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. So the tone remains light and and funny and sort of off the wall from beginning to end, even when it gets to the really difficult stuff. But it works, I think, because the men are never lovable. No, you know, they suck. They're awful men. You know, it, I mean, there is an argument that it, it trivializes the act of rape in the final moments yeah, only yeah, because you, you could you could say that the way that the gags go on and that the ending could be interpreted as like, wait, what happened? There's a very saccharine ending mm-hmm. and a shot that Lester says he just wanted to rip off from Umbrellas of Cherbourg of the camera like dollying up into the sky as fireworks go up. Yeah, yeah, I, I do get that. I mean, it's a bit of a high wire act, this movie. Mm-hmm. And you can see it. It's like, oh, I can see what he's attempting, even though you don't you may not agree with the way that it goes about it. But it does, like Will said, trivialize the men. They are not cool. They are lame and they suck. Yeah, it's quite funny and it's just very dynamic to watch throughout. Out. Mm-hmm. So 1968's Petulia, which is another one of his key movies, as you said, the only one that he made or shot entirely in the United States. And again, this is dealing with difficult subject matter that he's approaching in a very in-your-face style kind of way. So first of all, I'm a fool because I went into the, I went into this one thinking it was a comedy. Yeah, and <laughs> and not knowing anything about it. Mm-hmm. So I would have benefited in advance knowing that this movie is very much indebted to not so much the new wave, but stuff like Last Year at Marion Bad, mm-hmm. stuff like Antonioni. It's wild that a movie like Last Year at Marion Bad at the time was like all those movies were discussed enough and popular enough in the mainstream that a movie like this could be made with major movie stars. Yeah, George C. Scott and Julie Christie are in the film. That's right. But anyway, it's it's a it's a wonderful movie. The main characters are Pachulia and Archie, played by Christie and Scott. 
both of them excellent, by the way. And she's a socialite who's in an abusive marriage to a husband whose father is a high-ranking society member. Played by Port Cinema Club favorite, Joseph Cotton. That's right. Looking the age that he did in the makeup in Citizen Kane. <laughs> George C. Scott is an affluent man going through a very painful divorce. His wife, played by Shirley Knight, has a new suitor who she's very eager to sort of parade in front of him. And the movie starts in a way that it seems like it'll be, oh, you know, this old fuddy-duddy George C. Scott meets a manic pixie dream girl played by Julie Christie and they have fun adventures and he learns a lesson, learns to be free. And I mean, on the surface, that's basically what it happens. But it's also very sad about Julie Christie's life and where she ends up at the end of the movie. Like the other Lester movies that we've talked about so far, it feels very free-flowing and the editing is very jagged, but it's not exhilarating like the other ones. The jagged editing almost assaults us in this mm. movie. Well, because usually they're cutting away to something jarring or violent that it took place in the past of the characters to undercut the moment that you're seeing play out on screen. It's very much a 1968 movie. Most of it's set in high society spaces, very glitzy and glamorous spaces. But the Vietnam War is this ever-present thing in the background. As you say, we're just constantly being interrupted by hideous violence, like that awful scene where the kid gets run over by the car. Mm -hmm. And then there are other scenes, like there's that scene where, and this is all in non-linear fashion, you know, flashback. And kind of uh, Nick Rogue-esque. What's this? Nick Rogue shot this movie? <laughs> oh my god! That's right. And I actually just watched uh, Don't Look Back a week or two ago, so I was... Oh, you mean Don't Look Now? Don't Look Now, sorry. I mean, uh, you could have watched Don't Look Back as well, the classic Bob Dylan documentary. That one's a, a regular rotation at my house for mm -hmm. sure but yeah so I, I did watch don't look now recently so i i was reminded in that rogue headspace yeah very viscerally of it but anyway there's that scene where george c scott takes his estranged kids to alcatraz mm -hmm. on a visit which i don't know the juxtaposition of that space with the other spaces in the movies like violence and death as well as like decay that sequence is also shot in the style of a hard day's night mm -hmm. with them like running around and in like crazy compositions yeah so there's just always something very disquieting both about the editing and about the mise-en-scene of this movie it's an upsetting movie it's very unpleasant especially with the finality of it all where you're like oh god this abusive relationship it gives you very little room for hope at the end i mm -hmm. mean i think it's a very powerful film one day i will see it again and be able to follow it more easily <laughs> as opposed to going wait i was ready to laugh what is this i know, I know. you and your significant other she's like i thought this was like a hard day's night will what are you making me watch but yeah a very moving film mm -hmm. great performance but one that's been forgotten like a lot of lester's films beyond a hard day's night and help like they don't get discussed very much it's interesting that patchouli has been forgotten because when it came out i mean i i think the critical consensus was somewhat divided but the ones who liked it were saying this is one of the best movies of the decade mm -hmm. like it was greeted as a very major film at the time i don't know what it is like there's just a very small number of movies just that upper crop of movies in any decade that really survives and that gets carried on in the popular imagination i mean this movie was not a great box office success and i think people just don't want to watch it very much <laughs> i think it's as simple as that i mean people can't stop talking about nick rogue like this basically rogue-esque <laughs> right mm. from the get-go yeah it's not as fun as don't look now in its way yeah i mean maybe fun's a weird word <laughs> 
look now. But it's a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, you know? not enough sex. That's what we get off on. Genre movies uh, survive. Mm, you're you right. Know? 100%. Genre movies survive. Dramas rarely do. And I mean, the next film that he made didn't survive at all, where he really blew his load. 1969's The Bed Sitting Room. Now, I know Will didn't watch this one, but I should bring it up because it was Richard Lester's kind of like very satirical out there adaptation of a Spike Milligan play about the uh, post-apocalypse. And I mean, this movie has its fans, but it basically tanked Lester's career until he took up the three musketeers in 1973 and he admits himself there's a reason there's a big gap in that filmography from 1969 to 1973 nobody would give me any work so the three musketeers which was shot i think at the same time as the four musketeers yes a super production by the super duo of alexander and Ilya salkind mm-hmm. who later went on to do the superman films as well as the great S- santa, santa claus <laughs> the movie santa claus the movie yeah. yes and the three musketeers is a movie that i've always liked once i knew who lester was and i checked it out uh, it's just a very you know slapsticky take on the three musketeers basically a bunch of disparate scenes edited together with charismatic people doing their thing all right so i don't know what to say about this one because i watched it stone-faced <laughs> really yeah this I seems know. like a will movie like from the get-go i know i know and i'm just in a bad mood maybe i was yeah i don't know it's just, I, I do agree even that... christopher lee doing shtick like being bonked on the head i liked him i feel yeah i don't know what to say about this i feel the good cheer that's supposed to be there i definitely feel what you what you said about it feeling like a lot of random scenes scenes stitched together Mm -hmm. i mean i know that there's this great book that it's based on but (laughs) the narrative momentum doesn't really feel like i mean has there ever been a great adaptation of the three musketeers like they won't stop doing it oh uh the one one with chris o'donnell vulgar (laughs) tourism uh oh who could forget peter himes the musketeer i mean this movie's got a great cast raquel welch is pretty funny in Mm -hmm. it i think michael york is sort of charming in it uh, if, Oliver Reed, drunken and doing his thing. Well, after I, all, I always love Oliver Reed. Maybe it, your issue is you're like, I need the complete story. <laughs> you need to watch <laughs> the Four Musketeers right after. Well, I'll, I'll say that I was not really. I and I do feel like I'm in the minority on this, and I and I'm not even articulating any case against it very well. Mm-hmm. All, many people find this movie delightful. For me, it just kind of felt like scene after scene that didn't quite didn't quite Gel. rise to the level of making me laugh mm. like there's a lot of silliness in the movie the visual style of it felt a little heavy for the silliness on display um, i mean you can't argue with that esque you know no i remember when i watched it for the first time i was shocked at how many people keep getting murdered very <laughs> casually in the action scenes yeah so i did like that the kind of casualness and the the whole like oh it's a romp that's what yeah. you would say that it is and if you can't connect with it uh, yeah you can't connect I with think it possibly i was just in a bad mood when mm. i watched it i don't know i mean i watched juggernaut which came out the year after three musketeers but was actually made in a pause between finishing the first one and the second second part and this was when Lester started doing his for hire stuff mm-hmm. when he would just someone called him up and said hey we're about to start shooting in two weeks can you come and do this and this is a thing that happens I feel like with a lot of live directors John Frankenheimer was constantly taking people's jobs like famously the Alan Dr. Monroe Sidney Lumet did this a lot as well I think it's just that kind of ethos of well I'm just making movies we're just doing things yes I'll jump on it's a challenge and Juggernaut is actually great it is always compared to the Irwin Allen disaster movies even though it did come out before the towering inferno and what's great about it is that you have a drunk richard harris there's no other kind <laughs> as a bomb defusal expert with a bunch of like british character actors that are on a big boat and it's mostly centered around him trying to defuse these seven bombs mm-hmm. so all the people on the boat don't get killed they're out to sea there's no way to get off because there's a big 
storm going on. It's just delightful. You get to see a young Anthony Hopkins, a young Ian Holmes. They're all there. It's the most fall autumnal uh, disaster movie you've ever seen. Everyone's wearing like sweaters and like turtlenecks throughout all of it. So I would recommend. And it's another one of those movies, kind of like Petulia, kind of even like The Knack, that it's like Kino, like quietly put it out on Blu-ray. You know, the fans bought it, but no one's really talking about it or recommending it that much. So what happened to his career? How, why did he stop directing? Because he's still alive. He's he, 90 years old. So what happened was when he made The Return of the Musketeers in 1989, his good friend Roy Kinnear fell off a horse and died. And he said, basically, that that kind of left an internal trauma in him, mm -hmm. that it was difficult to ever pick up a camera again and direct anything. Mm -hmm. And he's still alive, like you said, and he just hasn't done anything since then. I mean, he also was, you, you look at his filmography, it felt like kind of blow after blow of like, yeah, people don't really like this movie. Uh, you're coming on as a journeyman. Robin Marion, the old Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn Robin Hood movie, that one's great. And you can feel him committed. But he even says himself is that like, other than the Superman films, like he was never able to direct any modern day in the moment movies. And that, I feel like that's kind of what he wanted to do. There was always either like a high gloss of fantasy on them or a high concept. And it may just be because his style was so in the moment when he was making A Hard Day's Night mm -hmm. and The Knack. Like, you know, hey, kids, this is what's popular now. You feel this rush of energy. And then when you keep going and it's like, all right, can I get more jobs? You're like, eh, we forget that moment that has passed it's also hard to stay in the moment yes you know? absolutely. i mean he would admit that himself in the interview book with Soderbergh, he's like i cannot keep track of all of the new stuff that's coming let's out let's see him do something on soundcloud rappers <laughs> and he did mention that he was one of the guys that was known as kind of like out of the hundred fifth Beatles. Mm -hmm. And then he said that he reached a level of stardom. That, like he could not even go out in public because people would recognize Richard, who he Richard is. Lester. Richard Lester. <laughs> yes. Such um, was the glow from the Beatles. Man. And I mean, at this point, I don't think anyone would recognize him if he went out, but <laughs> maybe he's like that burnt him out. And he's like, I've made enough movies. That's fine. Like in the Steven Soderbergh book, which was written in 1996, he said like, I go to the office, spend a couple hours, then I go home and that's my life. Like, it's not like I'm not doing anything, but it's just, I'm not making movies. Well, maybe, people aren't always destined to be great from beginning to end. Mm. Maybe people are. I mean, they rarely are. Yeah, like. yeah. But maybe people have moments of greatness and, that, mm. and that's great. I mean, he's very aware of his career. And I think that he was also interested, like some of the movies he made later on, like Royal Flash and Cuba were about losers and the kind of patheticness of them, which is kind of the running theme other than the Beatles films, like mm. uh, The Knack is about losers. Uh, Cuba, which is a big Sean Connery vehicle. He said Sean Connery hated him when he saw the final cut of the film because like his character is just kind of like a loser mercenary who doesn't really know what's going on. And I felt that kind of hurt his basically cachet, which, you know, when it's whatever your last movie was, doesn't matter if you made A Hard Day's Night, people are like, Psh, get out of here. But thankfully, because we're talking about him, Lester Fever, it's back, baby. She's going to make another movie. Richard Lester's like, thank you very much to the Important Cinema Club. I'm like 93 years old, but I'm getting back behind the camera. As per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Chris Smith. And he goes, hey guys, before I ask my question, I wanted to thank you both for reinvigorating and deepening my love of film over the past couple of the years through the work you've done on ICC and beyond. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, I never get tired of reading these emails of people thanking us, <laughs> even though I feel like reading these emails have kind of made people say, well, I got to write this big opening paragraph of thanks. Do you think the, the people listening get tired of hearing other people talk about how much we've changed their Absolutely. lives? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but you're going to keep hearing you're it, gonna hearing it. Uh, this person also mentions since the beginning of the pandemic, I signed up for a criterion becoming detour pill 
world. Hey, we should get a cut of that Criterion money if you signed up. I agree. Yeah, people write on Twitter, have you signed up for Criterion after listening to the Important Cinema Club? If so, we should be like, you know, you can get offers or whatever for Criterion or, or movie. I should, I should be allowed to write an essay for one of those Blu-rays. Yeah. Come on, let me, let, let me do it. Let Will do one and let me do one of lesser stature. Um, You know, some martial arts, they're doing all martial arts films now. We can do that. Yeah. Or Canadian cinema, get us in there. So his question is, have you seen or heard of Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter by Lee DeMarb? It's a bit of a cult favorite in the Ottawa indie punk scene. I will say, I feel like I've gotten this question before. <laughs> have you? Because I remember when Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter came out because it's one of those titles. Of course you remember it. I remember watching an episode of Open Mic with Mike Bullard. <laughs> yes. Canada's talk show where Lee DeMarb... Did, did he do a movie, Mike Bullard? Because we need to do an, an episode no, on him. he never he did. did a movie. Believe me, I've looked. <laughs> But uh, Lee DeMarb was the first guest, and I remember Mike Bullard led the conversation by saying, so, you're the first guest on a national talk show. That's a, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Like, almost in this... Almost Wait, he was this... the first Mike Bullard guest? Yeah. Well, he was the first guest on whatever episode that okay. was. But anyway, Bullard said that in a way that I thought was a little bit condescending. Like, can you believe this, that we're so low in our Rolodex now that we're, we've resorted to you? Mm. Uh, but <laughs> I haven't actually seen Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. It's fun. I actually have a weird kind of history with Lee DeMar, which is that he used to have a radio show from Ottawa University. I would listen to my dad when we would drive from Castleman to Ottawa. And it was like basically a film podcast where he and his two friends would just talk about whatever movie was coming out, whatever they loved. And Lee DeMar is a famous Hong Kong movie nut that like mm. he has 60 millimeter prints. He had 35 millimeter prints. Like he was, he loves Jackie Chan, loves them. Sounds like my kind of guy. Yeah. Lee, and, let's be friends. And I have met and hung out with him at the theater. He owns the Mayfair theater. Because, oh, he, wait. Oh, yes. he owns the Mayfair theater. He owns oh, the Mayfair okay. theater. Okay, great. No, he's, I, I he's living the dream. I love the Mayfair. Fair theater. Okay, well, good. I didn't make that connection. And I had a very brief email exchange where he's like, he was going to meet me to give me a copy of his movies. And he's like, ah, you know, you can go to a head shop and pick them up. <laughs> he's like, I don't know, I'm too busy. But he seems like a very nice guy. He had that original film podcast. It was called like the Drunken Master Review or something like mm -hmm. that. They did it for a while too, that, to the point that I remember being in university and going, hey, they're archived now so I could listen to them like podcasts. Anyway, I need to check out Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Shot on Super 8. Oh, well, that really yeah. gets me interested yeah he's a big film guy like he was obsessed with like shooting stuff on film oh cool uh he has like the harry knuckles movies too oh wow yeah so i have all of those what a guy on the shelf so right. yeah super fun guy keeps making movies and i mean living the dream taking over a movie theater which right when i moved away is when he took it over like every month he would show like oh we're showing some young bu movie like license to steal on 16 millimeter they always have great programming over there at the Mayfair. oh yeah. yeah they were so excited when in ottawa check it out uh they were so excited Decided to show Ben Ruffitt's like Hamilton trash cinema like VHS night. They did it like twice where he, they just let him take over the theater and like play VHS movies. Like Lee was so excited about it and like hyping it up and stuff like that. So he is truly one of us living the dream. So yes, I have seen it. Will has not. Perhaps we'll do an episode about it at one point. Yeah, let's do it. Especially that it centers like very specifically in 2001 when those cult things were around, but it didn't have the kind of motion that it would have, you know, seven years later when or whatever when amount of 
Repo time. the Genetic Opera came Grindhouse out. is what I'm Grindhouse. saying. Grindhouse, yes. Our next one's from Mark Britton, and he goes, Good afternoon. Huge fan of the show. Just a really quick question. Any chance of you guys doing a Tom Lachlan, Billy Jack episode? I've always been fascinated by the DIY quality of these films, their exploitative nature, and their disjointed mix of spirituality, hippie philosophy, martial arts, and white guy interpretation of Native American culture. I've also found fascinating how a film phenomenon on par with Jaws, The Godfather, and Star Wars, debatable, but cites those for emphasis, was essentially obscure by the mid-90s. They became forgotten in less than 20 years. Why? So interesting and would love to hear you guys talk about it. Many thanks. Keep up the great work. You know, you, know, you say debatable, but those Billy Jack movies... Were, were massive. It was the biggest independent film ever. They were... All of them were in the top five movies of the year when they came <laughs> That's out. That's from Tom Laughlin for walling feeders and like That's buying right. them out and, you know, getting all the bu- the money that way. So yeah, those movies, I've only seen the first one. He, I think it's okay. It's fun. Yeah. You know, it's an exploitation movie, basically. Yep. But he's like a cool, badass guy who's also Native American. Yes. And uh, Tom Laughlin is not. Uh, okay, I didn't I didn't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's a white guy. <laughs> I've never, I, assu- I assumed he had to have been. Just like been. Steven Seagal, of course, well, right? Well, the movies are very Seagal-ish, where yes. like every scene, it's him, you know, going up to some situation and people being like, hey, what's you, you uh, yeah you want to fight and you'll be like well yeah i'll fight you and he fights everyone you know which quentin tarantino would rip off and once upon a time in hollywood and was very open about that fact that that scene where brad pitt beats up on the manson hippies is just like his version of a billy jack scene well those movies i mean the first one at least is very steven seagalish too because it has i don't want to say leftish politics but it has i mean it's like very like pro-indigenous rights mm. pro-environmentalism <laughs> that kind of thing while also being i mean i think he's got a bit of a libertarian streak as well um, i mean we'd have to check out his opus which i believe is almost three hours long billy jack goes to washington right <laughs> yeah so i mean i can see us doing a tom laughlin episode at one to. point yeah. yeah let's let's do it because i mean small filmography lots to talk about and i also remember that that first one which was such a huge hit it didn't get any academy award nominations obviously i mean he must have had a lot of money he would publish these full page ads in the new york times or like he published the like top 10 lists of all the major critics roger ebert charles champlin whoever else was a critic at the time and the movies would be like you know the last picture show cries and whispers you know and he's like where's billy jack he'd be like he'd be like you've never heard of these movies you've never seen these movies but you have seen billy jack (laughs) and i just love (laughs) i love the chutzpah of that you know so our next letter is from lynn olson and he goes for a little over a week during the summer i was visiting my parents place which like usual left me with a lot of time to watch movies one day when i was at the house by myself i decided to check out two films that had been on my radar for a long time that had recently been added to one of the several streaming service planet Terror and Death Proof. I don't have much to say about Planet Terror, aside from the fact that the way people have described it to me over the years made it sound a, a lot more annoying and random than it really is, and I had a blast watching it. But my main point is, the second film I have seen so much discourse about Death Proof over the years is that it's honestly kind of exhausting. People claim it's Tarantino's best and his worst in equal amounts. Letter writer says that he was genuinely shocked by the twist that the movie takes, and that he wasn't ready for it, and that he was blindsided by it. And he asked, and I'm curious if you've ever been sideswiped by a film taking a turn like that and also if there's a recurring topic of film discourse that you'll never ever see again love the show i don't know if this is kind of what he's getting at but can you remember back in 2009 when everyone signed the roman polanski petition <laughs> the yes. free roman polanski petition was it steven soderbergh and basically Martin everyone Scorsese, yeah. the Coen brothers they were all on it and i feel like something like that might never happen again <laughs> i don't, you don't know. think so well who knows who knows where the pendulum might swing yeah but there was there was definitely in those in those days 
Roman Polanski, aside from, you know, people were eager to not even have separate the artist from the art discussions on him. They, they were very eager to be like, listen, he served his debt to society. Come mm. on, like lay off him. That was that was a very mainstream position at the time. Will there be a topic that you'll never see again? Will the film of the Woodman live on? <laughs> Woody Allen? Yeah. I They live on every day at my house. Oh my God. <laughs> the horrors. Will has wrought upon the internet. With his constant Mort Rifkin. Uh, and you know what? Still haven't seen the movie. You still haven't seen the Rifkin's no, Festival? No. I mean, you've seen Rainy Day in New York. Oh, God. So bad. It's awful. So bad. <laughs> I don't think you're going to like Rifkin. <laughs> no, I don't think I will either. I think I probably laugh more than I did watching a Rainy Day in New York. Have you seen Radio Days? Watch, yeah, a long time watch ago. Watch that one. That's yeah. better. <laughs> watch one of the good ones. Yeah, well, of course they're better. <laughs> what if you suddenly change your Twitter profile, like your Twitter thing to like, listen, we've all laughed a lot about more Rifkin. I think Woody Allen films are good, though. Here are some ones I recommend, and you recommend one every day. <laughs> I think then people would people might get upset at that. Yeah, I think so. They are good. Uh, any, anyway, what what was um, what yeah, was the other? You've question? ever been blindsided by a movie? Oh, oh. Yeah, Rainy Day in New York. I'm like, this fucking sucks. <laughs> I've definitely, I'm sure, been blindsided by movies, but now I'm struggling to think. You know, I'm lucky enough that I have seen the movie Psycho with two people who did not know the twist. <laughs> really? Yes. And this has happened to me twice in my life. And How are you throwing Psycho on as just a casual watch? Oh, one time was uh, with a girlfriend mm-hmm. back in the day, and the other time was with a friend. And uh, neither, both of them wanted to watch it. Neither of them knew the twist. They just but knew that the, the shower, the someone gets murdered in the shower? Like, well, they, were they not aware of that? They knew that there was the shower scene, but they, but they didn't know it was halfway through the movie. Mm. They thought they figured that, both of them figured that it was like the end of the movie. Okay, so when the shower scene happened, though, they were like, wait, what? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and it was so it was so satisfying to experience that. And then were you like, yeah, and you know, the second half, people don't really remember that one that much. <laughs> That's pretty much where the movie ends. Well, they also, neither of them also knew the twist that involved his mother. Mm. So I just kept having a great time on both occasions, experiencing that through someone who didn't know. Will likes to wander the streets asking people, have you seen Psycho? Do you see about <laughs> Psycho? You want to watch it? And he'll find a third person one day. And yeah. oh boy, what fun that will be. I mean, like stuff like, you know, the big famous twist is like Darth Vader's Luke's father. Everyone knows that. I still remember seeing that for the first time. I think I was was six or seven. Mm -hmm. And I think I said, I was watching it with my dad and I think I said, that's not real, is it? Yeah. He's he's, he's just making it up. And then you were like, I don't want to watch a third one. This this movie's Jump the Shark. No, thank you. And it's like, wow, Will, you watch a lot of Happy Days. You know the Jump the Shark reference? We didn't know that Luke's father was Darth Vader? Huh, that's weird. I was pretty blindsided by Old Boy when I saw that when I was a teenager. Yeah, probably me too. I don't know how it was going to end. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like an end twist too, but I'm I'm wondering if there's like a middle act thing where you're like, oh, what? This is what the movie's actually about? Uh, Tusk? <laughs> have you, you haven't seen, seen Tusk? Okay, yeah, we've been over this a million times. Okay, I'm a good man. I haven't seen Joker, Tusk. Uh, Love a good film. Uh, Ripkin's, Ripkin's Festival. Festival. Yeah. At this point, it's just like me holding my ground, being like, "No, it's too big a People deal." People are knocking on your door, begging you to see Tusk, <laughs> yeah. and you you refuse. Well, Kevin Smith hinted at he's like, "Maybe there's a Tusk too in my future." What would that even be? <laughs> like Michael Parks is not even around anymore. Oh, there are a ton of other characters, like the Johnny Depp character, <laughs> the guy. That he plays. Do you think Kevin Smith would make another film with Johnny Depp? Of course he would. Do you think so? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah, I don't think the abuse stuff would stop. No. Okay. A lot of people are on Johnny's side on that. You know. <laughs> 
I'm not saying they should be. I'm just saying. Th- Will Sloan. No, not me. <laughs> yeah, not yeah. me. I'm just saying the fact is mm-hmm. that there are a lot of people who are on his side. Okay. So then I said that that discourse with Polanski couldn't come back. Maybe it could. It did. Yeah. Yeah. It maybe did. it could. Okay. So f- scratch that answer. Yeah. There's no discourse in the world, even if you're like, ah, we've learned our lesson. That'll never happen again. That won't come it'll, back it'll around. It'll come back in different guises. It mm. might not be about certain things, mm-hmm. but the general tenor of it will come back. Thank you very much for your letter. And this week on our Patreon, we're talking about things that are censored for obscenity and that the people that made it go to jail. Oh, they don't go to jail. They get a sentence. We're talking about the cartoonist Mike Diana, who to this date is apparently probably with a lot of asterisks, the only artist in the United States who is successfully prosecuted for obscenity. We're talking about a documentary about him by the great Frank Henenlotter, as well as Mike Diana's own directorial debut, the shot-on-video atrocity, Blood Brothers. <laughs> atrocity. <laughs> I mean, he'd love it if you called it that. So. I know, yeah. So we talk about things that, you know... Don't let the kids listen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe we'll be prosecuted for obscenity. Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> so if you want to hear something about something at the kind of grimy underbelly of cinema history, check that out, folks. <laughs> yep. It's at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. So that's it for the important cinema club. So until next week, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery have a podcast. Oh, yeah. We listened to the first episode when we were driving back from Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Yeah, I was mm, more agnostic on it. So I haven't listened to any since then. Oh, really? Because Tarantino drives me insane. Hey, hey, hey. let's preface this with, but we would happily be his friend. I would love to be his friend. (laughs) Yes. I just, and to be clear, I just want to say, if I have... If I am about to badmouth Tarantino, if I have ever badmouthed Tarantino, that is like pissing in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yes. You know, he, but he'll take it personally, though. Like, well, the, so I'm just saying, Quentin, if you're listening and you probably are not. We are worms. We are nothing. Y- you you, yeah. you make Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I'm nothing. <laughs> you do a podcast. <laughs> so if I make fun of you, that means nothing. Mm. Uh, Just the same way that if some nobody on Twitter makes fun of you, it doesn't affect you. Oh, it right? doesn't <laughs> affect me at all. I'm not stewing over it. I'm not DMing Justin saying, <laughs> what the fuck? Why is this fucking bastard? <laughs> you think Tarantino does that? Like, look, he, he searches his name every morning. He's like, why would somebody write this? I actually wonder what it's like for him because, you know, I was reading an issue of Grindhouse Purgatory. I was reading a lot of issues of Grindhouse Purgatory, mm. which 42nd Street Pete writes, mm. and no issue passes by without some... Ragging on Tarantino. Some ragging on Tarantino. Someone saying, yeah, he's a poser. He's, he wasn't really at the Grindhouses. And I, Tarantino loves this stuff. He loves reading about this stuff. What's it like for him to just pick up stuff and, you know, find... You it know? happened to me, where I picked up an issue of the Phantom Cinemascope. I was laying in bed, going through it, and there was a bad review of, like, Teddy Bomb or something like that, oh. just out of random. And I was like, boom! And I threw the Phantom Cinemascope against the wall. Never picking up it again and i think that guy passed away <laughs> a couple years well later. how about that the de clue curse but tarantino i don't know it must be weird he must be I, I guess used to it did you see that i posted in that lester soderbergh book there's a little entry on soderbergh in 1996 going on uh, an aol forum and being like this fucking pissant he hasn't done anything but he keeps making fun of me i know i shouldn't let it bug me but it does well i think you know probably at this point tarantino has thick skin mm-hmm. i mean he's been around a long time he he survived the what was that short film that mike sullivan made uh, uh who do you think you're fooling who do you think you're fooling like he survived that mm-hmm. um and all, has gone on so it's like all yeah 
I mean, I think we talked about it on the podcast because and Mike Sullivan posted this on his Twitter where he friended Tarantino. On he tried Fa- to friend Tarantino on Facebook and Tarant- Tarantino <laughs> said, OK, absolutely not. But you've done some good podcasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I know who you are. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. Like, come on, man. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we are going to talk about Tarantino, though. Here, here's how I feel about him. If you agree with them, there's nobody better to agree with. Mm-hmm. If you don't agree with them, there's Ooh. nobody worse. Yeah. Uh, now, the the issue with the podcast is it is unavoidably the Tarantino show. I mean, I've listened to a few. I cannot imagine Roger Avery being go, going like, no, you're wrong, Tarantino. Like, what are you talking about? The best interview I've ever read with Tarantino was that one a couple Martin years Scorsese. ago. Yep. Him and Martin Scorsese and I think Director's Guild magazine or whatever it was. You can find the transcript online. It's great because it's the only time I've ever seen Tarantino talk to somebody who really outranks him. Check out Important Cinema Club, uh, Tavernier and Tarantino, talking oh. about, I translated the French interview. It's on the website, Film Trap. So mm-hmm. just search Tarantino, Tavernier, it'll come up. That's another one where it's like two people who know what they're talking about, you know, jumping back and forth. Right. But I mean, look, I love hearing Tarantino talk. I, I, lo- I loved his appearances on uh, the Pure Cinema podcast. Mm. Well, up to a certain point. <laughs> well, up, up, up to a certain point, because like I say, when I don't agree with him, he's insufferable mm. and he's maddening, and I yeah. want to get him. Because he won't let it go either. Like... He also he he states his opinions so he he'll state his wrong opinions so confidently. Well, it's because I mean, listen, as if it's... I don't know Tarantino, but I feel like there's very few people who are like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Like, no, let, I'll do it. You get him here right absolutely now. Absolutely not. You think I won't? No. Will would be like, "Oh, whatever you say, Mister Tarantino." Uh, yeah. Maybe I would. <laughs> yeah, you're like, "What? What? Bella Lugosi's way over." Oh, yeah, I'm burning all my copies of these <laughs> DVDs and prints I have. I, I hope I wouldn't do that, but there's only one way to find out. Let's get him as a guest. Let's get Tarantino as a guest. But what I've loved about this show is looking on Letterboxd and people reviewing the movies that he talks enthusiastically about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it's one thing for Tarantino to be known as like, oh, the movie guy. And it was like, oh, man, he really knows movies. He loves movies. But then when he talks about a movie a lot... And then you see all these people in real time being going like, what the hell is this? So funny. People watching the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like he talked about the Uli Lamel cocaine cowboy movie Mm -hmm. that stars an actual drug dealer. And like he talked, you know what? I would say, though, that the way he talks about it, he does do that kind of like, you gotta listen to the the notes he doesn't play because he's given to you like this bad. Like he'll like focus on one thing and talk that up. But then when you watch a movie in its you know entirety, you're like, oh, man, this is bad. Because that's how Tarantino works. Also, probably a lot of the people who are watching the movies maybe don't have a lot of experience with that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. They, they know Tarantino's movies yes. and Tarantino's movies are very entertaining and slick and polished and yeah. really deliver. And, you know, a lot of the movies that he's drawing from are maybe a little less polished, a little less slick. And I think that there is that novelty. If he's talking about movies enthusiastically every week on the show, there's like, well, I got to see it mm-hmm. as opposed to like you're hanging out with friends and someone says, like, oh, I really like this one thing, this part of it. And you check it out. You're like, ah, it wasn't really for me. But your friend is not like a big famous person. So you, mm-hmm. there's not that expectation that's attached to it. <laughs> anyway, I just want to reiterate, Quentin, please be my friend. I mean, I was recently accused by a very good friend of mine of being a film contrarian. And I was really? like, what? What? I mean, is that because, I mean, you like a lot of stuff. Yes, I think it was in that context. He clarified, he said, you're more enthusiastic about some things uh, sometimes. I don't think that's fair because... I don't contrary. You're not a contrarian. I was be- taken aback because you don't have that. Um, you don't have that vibe to you. That's like ah, but I have the real opinion. Yeah, you know? confrontational of like being yeah. like, well, look at me. I mean, isn't the contrarian thing is like you? Oftentimes, when put that label, it's like, well, 
everyone's wrong. I'm right, like you just said. And you're reviewing the audience as much yes, as the movie. Yeah. Exactly. And you're looking for that kind of, when you're contrarian, you want that reaction from people. Like, right. negative, positive, right. it doesn't matter. Just spray me in it. Whereas you just kind of liked Jurassic World domination, <laughs> which, I, which, I saw on, which I saw on Letterboxd <laughs> the other day. Was it in reference to that review? Yes, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. Which I think is nice. I'm glad you liked it. I always want people to enjoy movies. Yeah, it's weird, because it, I look at it, and it's it, like we were chatting about it and I was like well, I'm not gonna like I'm not a full throated defense for this like, this gigantic blockbuster made by a terrible filmmaker that is just a reiteration of you know something that we do not need anymore for this IP that they won't let die but you kind of like the dinosaurs you like well, seeing them um... Sam Neill looks good yeah. <laughs> nice to see Sam Neill back up on screen I so. guess that's not nothing yeah yeah would I recommend it no <laughs> so there you go that's my contrarian opinion of the week 